Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Four more California counties move into the state's least restrictive yellow tier today. They are Orange, Santa Clara, Santa Cruz, and Amador counties. The yellow tier allows greater indoor and outdoor capacities at businesses, sporting events, and houses of worship. 44% of California's population, or about 17.5 million people, live in yellow tier counties. Inyo, Plumas, and Yolo counties could get to the yellow tier by next week if their COVID metrics hold. Just two months ago, by comparison, none of California's counties were in the yellow tier. With Santa Clara County moving into the yellow tier, officials there are implementing new workplace rules to keep track of the vaccination status of employers. Here's County Council James Williams speaking at a news conference yesterday. This new health order requires all businesses and entities to determine vaccination status of their personnel in the next 14 days. If someone chooses to decline to report their status, they must follow the safety rules for those who are unvaccinated. Santa Clara County health officials are also lifting the mandated work-from-home order as companies prepare to welcome back more employees, with the state reopening scheduled for June 15th. And businesses will not be required to impose social distancing protocols in their workplaces. Cal OSHA Standards Board is scheduled to meet tomorrow to discuss possible revisions to workplace guidelines in the state. One of the biggest changes the pandemic has brought to California's restaurant industry is encouraging the move of a lot of indoor dining outdoors to sidewalks and city streets. Could that change become permanent in some places? The San Diego City Council has voted unanimously to extend rules that allow outdoor dining for another year. The city will use the time to explore ways to make alfresco dining permanent in San Diego. The city, though, says it will be stepping up code enforcement to make sure fire and building codes are better followed by restaurants when they put up outdoor shelters. San Diego's Mayor Todd Gloria says he hopes permanent outdoor dining will make public spaces more welcoming and encourage street life. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. 
the land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. California's top energy regulators say the state is more prepared to avoid rolling blackouts like the ones that occurred last year, but the power grid is still vulnerable. During an oversight hearing yesterday before the Assembly Utilities and Energy Commission, Elliot Mainzer, president and CEO of the California Independent System Operator, says his personnel have taken steps to be better prepared for heat waves that cause electricity use to spike. Does that mean that we are in the clear Not necessarily. I have used the term guarded optimism because the steps we have taken together with the CPUC and CEC clearly place us in a better position relative to last summer. However, the most significant risk factor for grid reliability remains extreme heat, particularly heat that spreads across the wider Western United States, and it continues to get hotter every year. State officials say they've acquired more than 3,500 megawatts of capacity in preparation for what could be a very hot summer. That includes 2,000 megawatts of batteries designed to store energy from renewable sources like solar power. Providing people a guaranteed income with no questions asked has moved from a fringe notion to the mainstream with pilot projects popping up across the state. The possibility of a guaranteed basic income program in Los Angeles County took a step forward yesterday with a vote by the L.A. County Board of Supervisors. With more, here's KPCC's Libby Denkman. Supervisors voted 4-1 to one to pass two motions, one co-authored by Holly Mitchell and Sheila Kuehl, and another by Board Chair Hilda Solis. They both give staff 60 days to devise a guaranteed income pilot program for a small number of low-income county residents. The Kuehl and Mitchell motion calls for a plan to give at least 1,000 people across the county a minimum of $1,000 per month for three years. Supervisor Mitchell says the cash would help stabilize household finances. It's a faith and belief that families will always do what they can and put their children first. If it's ultimately implemented, L.A. County would join other local jurisdictions, including Long Beach and Compton, testing the idea of no-strings-attached payments. L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti proposed funding for a 2,000-person pilot in his city budget that takes effect July 1st. The city council is currently assessing the mayor's budget. For the California Report, I'm Libby Denkman in Los Angeles. Another issue the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors took up yesterday is disclosures from the L.A. County Sheriff's Department involving shootings and excessive force by deputies. Supervisors have directed county attorneys to draft an ordinance that would require the department to publish the names of deputies who open fire while on duty within 48 hours of a shooting. A report by the Los Angeles Times found that the L.A. County Sheriff's Department lagged behind law enforcement agencies in other big cities in the state when it comes to these disclosures. L.A. County Sheriff Alex Villanueva addressed the board yesterday. We appreciate the fact that you're, you're volunteering to, uh, 
assist us with uh, compliance with the new version of SB 1421. Our only reservation is the fact that the Inspector General cannot be part of the process. Because once he's part of the process, well, then he can no longer be a, a monitor. Senate Bill 1421, which calls for the release of law enforcement records that were once confidential, went into effect at the start of 2019. At a news conference last week, State Attorney General Rob Bonta said he was aware of the report and his office would take a closer look at it. Just months after Shirley Weber was confirmed as California's Secretary of State, she'll have to oversee her first statewide election. It's the recall election of Governor Gavin Newsom, who appointed Weber to her post back in December. KQED politics reporter Guy Marsrati has more on Weber's role in the recall. After a 2020 election with historic turnout, Weber is determined to get Californians back to the polls for a recall election this fall. We want to have a great turnout so that it truly is a mandate from the people one way or the other and not have it uh, because of an off year and off election of something that people just kind of toss aside. Weber's first challenge will be to convey basic information about the recall to voters, says Mindy Romero, director of the Center for Inclusive Democracy at USC. This is the election. This is the date of the election. What does a yes mean? What does a no mean? Do I fill out the second question about, you know, other candidates? Turnout was strong in California's 2003 recall election. And unlike then, voters will get mailed a ballot by default this year. But Romero says historically underrepresented voters could miss the off-year vote, especially given the unique recall ballot. If people feel unsure about what their vote even means, that could also potentially deter from some people from participating. As Secretary of State, Weber also sets the threshold for candidates to get on the ballot to potentially replace Newsom. And she could set a high signature requirement to avoid the 135-candidate frenzy of 2003. But Weber says she doesn't want to be seen as tipping the scales to limit candidates from running. Will we avoid the 135 or whatever it was last time? Would love to say we would and could, but, you know, I guess folks are already lining up. That doesn't necessarily mean Weber will stay silent about the recall question itself. California's previous Secretary of State, Alex Padilla, often voiced his opinion on candidates and ballot measures. So will Weber use her platform as elections chief to endorse or oppose the recall? You know, I haven't really decided yet. Um, I think people have asked me what I think about it. And I think as a citizen and elected official or not, I have a right to have an opinion about it. It doesn't affect what I have to do. Pete Peterson, the dean of Pepperdine School of Public Policy and a former Republican candidate for secretary of state, says it's best if the state's top election official stays neutral. I really do hope that Secretary Weber is able to pull back from that trend line uh, again to understand that her primary role is in the administration of elections in such a way that uh, voters trust the process. Still, Weber says she has concerns over whether recalls are a good use of the state's election resources, and she hopes to reconsider the process with the legislature, whatever the result. For the California Report, I'm Guy Marzarati.
A man has been booked on suspicion of arson for allegedly starting a wildfire in L.A.'s Pacific Palisades neighborhood that burned more than 1,100 acres this week. But another man, who was initially identified as an arson suspect on the app Citizen, has been released after being interviewed. The app brands itself as a tool for users to report crime in their area. But many criminal justice advocates say it could be a conduit for mistakes and misinformation. Boone Ashworth, who writes for the tech magazine and website Wired, joins us to discuss. Boone, for those who know nothing about it, and I include myself among that group, how does the Citizen app work? Sure. So Citizen is an app on your phone, and it's essentially a hyper-local notification app, right? So it tracks your location and knows where you are, and then it monitors emergency scanners like police, fire, medical, and then sends you alerts on your phone uh, to let you know when there's an incident, you know, whether it's a crime or a fire or whatever around you. If you are close enough, the app will also prompt you to pull out your phone and film the incident. And then it live streams that to the other viewers of the app who are also nearby. So have there been concerns that the app, in a sense, conscripts amateurs? It gets, you know, ordinary people to perhaps go into dangerous situations to record something, or they might record like the wrong person or the wrong thing. Yeah. So Citizen is no stranger to controversy. When they launched, they launched in 2016 as Vigilante. That was the name of the app. And they had to rebrand because of a a public backlash because they were essentially encouraging people to do just that, right? To rush into scenes and, you know, stop them with the power of their cell phone cameras. So there have been things like this for all the years that Citizen has been around. You know, it's similar critiques to the stuff that you would hear for sites like Nextdoor, you know, Stoking anxiety, stoking paranoia, kind of, um, you know, racial profiling and discrimination in the comments and whatnot. So so pretty much, you know, anything bad on the Internet is also on Citizen. And you touched on this briefly, and I assume that the app could really be used for racial profiling in some ways, right? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, to the point where in the early days of Citizen, they had to make a policy change to not describe suspects based on skin color or anything like that, just, you know, maybe clothes or some other less, you know, identifying detail. Citizen also has a moderation team that kind of goes through the comments and takes out some of the really bad stuff. In the time that I've been reporting on them and, and kind of just, you know, passively observing the app, I really haven't seen the comments get much better. I think the sheer volume of comments and people interacting with the app is just hard to keep track of, like with any platform that allows comments. And finally, has law enforcement embraced this app? There's been a sort of mixed reaction from law enforcement. Some places have supported it, you know, as potential ways to get evidence from a crime that has happened. I think that on a whole, especially when Citizen launched, police departments were overwhelmingly against it because they didn't like the idea of people, you know, kind of inserting themselves into these incidents. And also the idea of essentially what is unfiltered scanner information, which is sometimes wrong, just being, you know, sent out there more widespread to the public. So I I think it kind of makes their life more difficult, which sometimes can be a good or a bad thing, depending on your perspective, because it can also be used to, you know, film the police and incidents that are happening. Sure, I'm sure. All right. That is journalist Boone Ashworth, who writes for the tech magazine and website Wired. Boone, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Saul. I appreciate it.
In a statement to the California report, citizens said it publicly posted a photo of the falsely accused arson suspect and a cash reward of $30,000 without formal coordination with the appropriate agencies. The company says that once it realized this error, it took down the photo and reward offer. Citizen says it's working to improve internal processes to make sure this doesn't happen again. And that is the California Report for this Wednesday, May 19th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks for listening. And as always, have a great day. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine. Protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash Adapting Care. Personal Capital. Helping people take control of their finances with financial tools and objective advice from a fiduciary advisor. PersonalCapital.com And Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.